for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Well, that was good, Mark. I, um, we've done the outro as the intro, so I think we should <laughs> do the intro for the outro. So sorry about that, everybody. You thought, gee, that was a really short podcast there by Brendan and Mark. It's probably the quickest one they've ever done. What's happened? Well, I accidentally hit the wrong button there and I hit um, outro instead of intro, but we are not going to stop and retake it, Mark. I think we're going to go on because we've got so much to talk about. What have you been up to this week? Oh, it's been a busy, busy week at work. We've uh, It's always the way I think that when we come up to a public holiday and um, this podcast is uh, recorded for the week that is going to end on Good Friday, but in that week we seem to find that everyone needs something done before the long weekend and so we've been very, very busy at work. Um, lots of good cases, birds and, and chickens with reproductive issues and um, we've had some uh, um, some excellent successes, so it's been good. Good. Well, I've been, what have I been doing? Oh, the usual bit of this, bit of that, doing a little bit of teaching, finishing off my teaching at uh, Melbourne Polytechnic for the veterinary technicians or veterinary nurse, nurses, and we went through some really interesting sort of case reports today. We It was their final session of the, the third-year students, so we were trying to wrap up everything in the uh, treatment of unusual pets from the moment it comes into the vet clinic until it uh, until you kill it uh, or it goes home um, or it gets released in, back into the wild So um, for the wildlife cases. So we had fun today. So that was my, my what I did today. And, yeah, lots of things happening at work as well, reasonably busy, seeing some interesting dog and cat cases as well as the unusual pets. And, yes, Mark, it is the weekend in March the 29th. 9th of 2018 so this is the vet gurus and for those of you who want to enter our competition send us an email vetgurus at gmail.com and mark we have our first competition email um or um application for the for the prize and the prize is a guide to health and disease in reptiles and amphibians a signed book sent anywhere on the planet and the first email we have is from Karen. Karen is in Adelaide and she has a quite an interesting little story to tell, true story about what happened to her with a little micro bat. Have you got that email in front of you, Mark? I do, Mike, do you let to- me just uh, read it to you, um, Brendan. The, the uh, story is great because it finishes with a very successful outcome. Um, but uh, Karen re- relates that she'd just come out Um, of her gate and after shutting the gate she turned around with her two dogs on a lead um, and uh, there was a a magpie on the top of the power pole next to her and the magpie dropped the micro bat um, from the top landing from the top of the pole and it landed right at her feet Um, much to her surprise the magpie swooped down and proceeded to attempt to pick up the bat, picking it up and dropping it down as they do with prey items, flicking it around. Um, Obviously, her dogs became excited um, and her cat, which was out at the time, all came down the driveway to have a look um, 
And so she tied the dogs to the gate um, and she had one of her dog pooper scooper bags attached to the lead and she was able to scoop the bat up away from the uh, protesting magpie, took it inside and set it up in a shoebox. And she did all the right things, um, you know, because any time we're dealing and handling with bats, we have to make sure that um, uh, we practice biosecurity and limit the chance that we're going to come into contact with them. She used uh, gloves and barriers to make sure she didn't, but she got in touch with the local bat rescue um, and a wonderful lady uh, contacted her, organised to pick the bat up, and fortunately it hadn't been damaged beyond recovery um, and uh, and um, it was a little bit underweight. Uh, but was actually feeding with the carer and uh, they'd planned to release it. So um, Karen's rescued a bat from the magpie, rescued it from, made sure the dogs or cats didn't get it, um, and it looks like we're going to have a very successful outcome. So we appreciate that story. Yes, and, uh, well done, Karen. She is in the running for the prize and remembering the Prize? Did we set a date when it closes? Um, the 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 no, we haven't uh, set a date. But no, we haven't set a date. Just when we get the most exciting story. Ah, okay, all right. So that could be next week. It could be tomorrow. It could be tonight, Mark. So who knows? So particularly make sure you send an email. Yes, particularly with the way they're rolling in in such large numbers, it could be very very soon. They're flooding in, Mark. They're flooding in. And, um, you know, my email, it, it, it's, I think I have to turn off my spam filter because so many of them are coming in at the moment. And another exciting news item is we have another patron, Mark. So for those of you who want to help help support us and, and, and throw a little bit of money our way to help pay for the costs of hosting this um, podcast, go to patreon.com uh, vetgurus or just go to our website vetgurus.com. Dot com and you'll see a link about help us and I think you know who this person is Mark do you want to talk about who our second patron is I do I want to send out a big thank you to uh, my uh, wonderful associate Dr Alex Mastakov um, who has uh, um, uh, has been uh, he, I was talking to him recently on the phone he's away at the moment and he is traveling quite a distance in the car each day and uh, he's been he hadn't been uh, listening to all the the uh, podcasts we've done t- in a timely fashion, but because he's been travelling a bit now, he has switched them on and listened to them while he's driving. And he was um, he was surprisingly complimentary, so complimentary in fact that he saw fit to um, to uh, connect to our Patreon page and uh, and throw us a little encouragement. Brendan, I do want to stick out the challenge to, I just do want to point out at this point that um, our two patrons that we have at the moment either are one of my current employees or one of my past employees. So I send out a challenge to all the people who work with you to um, to get their finger onto that button as the onto the mouse as the the arrow goes over the patron button and get in there and add to the massive pool of money that we're accruing um so that we can continue this podcast for many years to come well i'll be in work tomorrow and i'll give a few dollars to each of my staff and they'll be jumping on the internet and um, sending the money back my way mark so i think that's how it may happen but that's probably a bit 
of cheating, isn't it? So I don't think we'll do it that way. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, Warren Wood Veterinary Centre staff, get going, and uh, you know who you are, and you're listening to it right now. I'm sure doing the cleaning at home, sitting by the pool, going down the shops. Um, yeah. VetGurus.com, get onto our Patreon site and support us. So enough about us again, Mark. Let's get into some actual news items. And we've got a very good product review this week as well as, a, I think, a, a, a an important main topic that we'll probably end up spending a long period of time talking about. Um, so sorry about that in advance, I'm going to say about that main topic. But the first news item I'm going to deal with, Mark, and this is a bit of an old story that was um, posted on Mother Nature Network, and it was eight quirky facts about the platypus. And I've been fortunate enough to have a reasonable amount of dealing with platypuses over the years when I was working as a zoo vet and even in private practice, and they are amazing creatures. And I just found this, when I saw this article, I knew I'd have to read it and see what they have to say and what sort of facts and figures they picked up about platypus that they thought were interesting. And there's one that I think is a little bit controversial. Actually, two of these um, eight facts that... um, Potentially, I might argue with that are not quite right, but we'll get stuck into that straight away. So this is from the Mother Nature Network. And fact number one, Mark, is people originally thought the platypus was a fake animal. And I think this is probably the most famous um, famous thing that people know about platypus that uh, when they were first discovered that uh, uh, George Shaw, the naturalist, wrote, so accurate is the uh the idea that this was is an artificial animal and everybody thinks that it's a a duck bill stuck on to um another animal and um i think that's um and there's lots of lots of things have been written about this and the the platypus was first described in 1799 um when it was taken back to to England, I think, and um, they were marvelling at this animal that they were trying to look for suture marks around the bill where it was sutured onto this other animal because they couldn't believe it was a- it actually existed, this animal. Fact number two, Mark, is platypuses are venomous mammals. And the important bit there is um, when we're dealing with platypus, especially the adult platypus and the males, and in particular they have those venom glands delivered through the spurs which are um, on their hind legs there around where the where we sort of call the ankle in in most animals um, and um, they're mildly venomous and I think if you were allergic to platypus venom you might get into trouble but the people have been envenomated by the platypus um, they've they've said and I have spoken to a couple of people who have been envenomated. Um, they said it just hurts a lot um, and it's pretty painful sort of bite, but um, they didn't have to end end up in hospital or anything like that. I've been lucky enough that I've never been spurred by a platypus. Um, fact number three, platypuses are egg-laying mammals. And as we know, Mark, what is the other egg-laying mammal that we um, see here in Australia? That's the one of the other monotremes, the echidna. The echidna and an echidna, I think, just quietly, Mark, the echidna is probably the most favourite animal of mine. I love echidnas. Echidnas and wombats, Mark. How's that for a bit of a, a, a divergent sort of um, species there? They're the two um, <laughs> native Australian um, animals that I just find fascinating and I, I love echidnas and I love wombats as well, yeah. So they're egg-laying mammals, as are the echidna 
um, as well as a platypus there. Um, number four, I think there's a lot of research going on about this recently in that um, they think platypus milk could combat superbugs is the headline in that there's um, active research going on into the properties of platypus milk uh, in that it contains antibacterial properties that could help us in the fight against antibiotic resistance and a 2018 study published in the journal of structural biology communications determined that a protein has a ringlet like structure so research named it the shirley temple protein which i thought was quite funny after the child actor known for her curly locks um, this structure is unique and um, among proteins and it could indicate a unique therapeutic function as well so that was number four number five was platypuses have 10 sex chromosomes so mammals typically just have a single pair of chromosomes that determine sex but platypuses have five pairs which is a, a rarity in mammals um why have they got the five pair of uh, the ten sex chromosomes of five pairs? Um, who knows? Um, and um, I haven't had a platypus that will tell me um, the answer to that one, Mark. So maybe somebody will work it out um, one day. Number six was one of the facts that I thought um, was a little bit um, controversial and potentially even a little bit wrong. And the comment is, uh, or the fact is, platypuses don't have stomachs, and they're saying by the definition that platypus digestive enzymes um, don't break down like other mammals um, and they're defining that the stomach the, is the part of the gut where the main part of digestion takes place and the, the glands there secrete pepsins and platypus don't secrete these pepsins therefore platypuses don't have a stomach and yet I would argue that they do have a stomach because structurally when you look inside a platypus and you do a necropsy on them you do see a stomach uh, a distinct structure there and if you look in the medicine of Australian map medicine is it Medicine and Surgery of Australian Mammals or is it just called Medicine of Australian Mammals textbook, Mark? I think it's just Medicine of Medicine, Australian Mammals. Yeah. Um, the platypus chapter there um, distinctly says that they do have a stomach there. So um, I'm calling that they do have a stomach and that the, um, the, the, the comment that they don't have a stomach is incorrect. Yes, they do not secrete the typical um, juices or acids that um, that are in the stomachs of other, other mammals, but um, I'd, I'd, I'd still say they do have a stomach. So somebody might want to send me an email on that and, and call me out on that if, I, if they think I'm wrong. Um, number seven, platypuses don't have teeth either. And, well, they basically have these grind-in plates um, that are used to, to, to grind up their, their typical prey items, which are, which are crustaceans and yabbies um, and, and those sorts of animals there. So um, they have a, have a sort of a, a mantle of, 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 of um, um, hard, hard palate sort of structure there that um, is used in grinding. And number eight is platypuses see with their bills underwater, and I think that's oversimplifying the, the, the process in which platypuses hunt, and that is um, via electroreceptors and mechanoreceptors that allow them to detect electrical fields and movement respectively, um, and that's the way that they hunt. So a couple of interesting facts there, and I think some of them um, – um, may or may not be um, quite right there, but um, yeah, they're pretty amazing creatures. Mark, have you? Do you see many platypus up your way um, that get brought into your clinic, or have ever been we, brought into your clinic? 
We have had a couple brought into the clinic. They are, um, re- like I get to see them reasonably uh, frequently if I'm out, um, you know, up Barrington or um, out towards Singleton. There's a, they're, they're reasonably common still in our area. Um, and we have had a couple that have been caught in yabby or fish traps that, uh, um, that, uh, um, need some TLC for a little bit, um, but um, they are. They, you just, I understand why. You know, you just feel in awe of them when you're in their proximity, and you're obviously careful that you don't get um, spurred, you don't get spiked by the males. But um, they're beautiful animals, and um, you know, I'd love to be able to spend more time just with them. Yes. Platypus, great animals, and we're so lucky to have them here and to, to potentially um, deal with them and see them and treat them, um, some of the amazing animals we have here in Australia. Um, Mark, you want to talk a little bit about doggies as the next news item? Indeed I do. It's another article from MNN. We're going to start uh, abbreviating the Mother Nature Network because we use it so frequently. We'll just use the acronym. And this article talks about how dogs are helping us understand cancer. Um, And um, in essence, the story is talking about um, the fact that there are a large number of um, dogs I suppose you'd call them um, similar factors, similar genetic makeups. There's um, lots of uh, um, types of cancers that occur both in dogs and humans. Um, and so there's a developing field called comparative oncology, which looks at the studies uh, between particular types of human cancers and animal cancers, obviously in in the hope that that research will lead to um, more effective treatments for people. But um, the interesting thing is that um, many of the tumours that we see in dogs, um, and I can specifically speak to osteosarcomas, a cancer that we see quite commonly in large breed dogs, um, it's already provided a significant amount of information um, for the same cancer which occurs in young adult male humans. So um, there are an increasing number of cancers that um, that uh, can provide information for uh, that, that's helpful for humans. I think the other thing that I find fascinating is that um, other experimental animals don't necessarily um, provide the same um, uh, information that tumours that occur in maybe mice or rats, some of our other lab animals don't. Uh, accurately reflect the behaviour and nature of the, the, the tumours that occur in humans. And so dogs provide a, um, a more um, useful, I suppose, experimental animal, um, research animal that can help with um, uh, understanding therapies or uh, understanding the, the, um, the way the, the factors that might help people cope with cancers. Um, so I think that... Um, uh, I think that, um, you know, veterinary oncology is certainly something since I've graduated, it's a, an entirely um, uh, a, an area of veterinary uh, practice that's developed from um, ver- a very um, low base. I don't think that's unreasonable to say when I graduated um, to, uh, you know, a, an outstanding level now where many of our clients take their animals um, for complex 
uh, treatment at specialist centres, and um, and it's just interesting to know there are other aspects of um, of uh, of the cancers of dogs that may help people in the future. Yes, and certainly we have at least one, maybe two veterinary oncologist specialist clinics here in um, in Melbourne and at least two or three um, registered specialists in, in veterinary um, oncology here. And, yes, when, when I graduated, there was zero. There was certainly zero of them. So it's uh, – it's, um, it's, um, and it's interesting. I, 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 it's it's, it's – the explosion of um, sort of the specialties, I think, is a good thing. Although um, some people try to um, struggle with the with the um, dealing with it, and and potentially the cost, I suppose, with some of these um, complex procedures, especially when you're dealing with the the cancer um, therapies and and medications that can be very expensive, especially if they're not um, subsidised like they are in in human um, medicine. Well, not all of them are, are they? So, um, yeah, it's um, I think it's a really pertinent little story that Mark um, cancer in dogs is um, um, comparing it with cancers in humans. Um, the next story is a really sad one, um, and I, you know me, I love the sad stories. <laughs> this and, is a really sad one, Brendan. It's it, really sad. It is, and that is the sad news that the world's last surviving male northern white rhino has died after months of poor health. And Sudan, who was his name, who was 45, lived in Kenya and he was euthanized on Monday after age-related complications. Um, and his death leaves only two females, his daughter and granddaughter, Mark, um, of the subspecies alive in the world. Um, so very, very sad. Um, and I'm just flicking through this it's been reported on a lot of the news services um the one i'm i'm reading from here is the bbc and uh um just a bit of background for those of you who don't know about all the species and subspecies of the rhinos there are five species and the second largest land mammal after elephants and the white rhino consists of two subspecies the southern white rhino and also the northern white rhino, um, which is a much rarer and critically endangered northern rhino, which we're talking about. And um, the subspecies was in Uganda, Central African Republic, Sudan and Chad. And there were lots and lots of them until about the 1970s and the 1980s when poaching was fueled by demand for rhino horn for use in traditional Chinese medicine and, interestingly enough, for dagger handles in Yemen, Mark, and the last few dozen wild rhinos were in in the Congo had, were, were killed by the early two thousands, and it was considered extinct in the wild by two thousand and eight. And where did they end up? In 2009, the four remaining northern white rhinos, two males and the two females, were transferred from the from the Czech Zoo to O. Pajeta in Kenya, and they were hoping that the new environment would reflect their natural habitat, and they would encourage breeding, which they didn't, unfortunately. So we just have the two two girls left. Um, and I thought one one quite funny thing and, and sign of the times, Mark, in that an account was created for Sudan, the the male that recently died on the dating app Tinder last year, Mark. Um, um, not for him to swipe left or swipe right, but for um, to raise some money for um, IVF 
IVF um, development um, for him because the plan was to use stored sperm from several northern white rhino males and eggs from the remaining younger females and implant the embryos. And they're still planning to do that by to implant the embryos in a surrogate southern white rhino. Um, So that's the aim long term. So rhino IVF is a radically new procedure and could cost as much as $10 million according to this um, news report but yeah very sad very sad um, mark so we've only got two of this species left so another species is about to hit the dust i think so that's my sad news story for the day mark um you have a semi-sad and maybe upbeat and maybe not upbeat news story for our last story and it's about cats and rats it is about cats and rats um it's uh It's a question that's been asked in Chicago and reported once again on the Mother Nature Network. Are feral cats the answer to rat infestations? Um, And uh, and there are some um, stories of the fact that uh, cats' predatory desire to exterminate rats is a big part of the reason that they became domesticated, that they would live in close proximity to people and decrease the, the, you know, the... Um, urge to run away from people and over time that's led to them becoming domesticated and they are as we all know very efficient hunters Um, and last November one Chicago older person um, he suggested that the city's department of streets and sanitation bring feral cats to deal with the city's rat problem Um, the Windy City uh, is known as the USA's rattiest city uh, by a number of uh, um, in a uh, you know publicity seeking pest control company um, uh, uh, um, award ceremony um, but um, but uh, there's very few arguments that um, Chicago has a serious rat problem um, but I think the key thing about this article is that um, I don't know that uh, you know, um, I think while a very simplistic analysis would be that, you know, we just bring cats in, they release them from the crate, they go out killing um, the rats and, uh, and in that way they um, decrease the number of rats in the area, their urine um, and scent masking will um, cause the rats to move away from the area knowing that there's predators there um, and... Um, and the council can routinely feed and house the rats, the, the cats, to um, ensure that they're happy. Um, but uh, I think the, um, you know, I think the general rule is that um, most of these biological control things, I think we can cite an endless series of them. And you have a very uh, pertinent one to talk about in a moment, Brendan. Um, but I can't think of. Uh, one biological control story that I could say to you, oh, look, that's just been an unmitigated success and only good things have happened from it. Even the ones that where good things happen, um, there's often a little bit of fallout. And I can't see any way that introducing um, feral cats to an environment is going to um, solve the problem. Um, and in yes. fact, I think it'll just result in a new problem. And I think that the, the little research that they quote in that article comes to the same conclusion there, Mark, that one, they haven't done proper 
studies on it um and and to it's probably not going to help that much yeah so rats for or cats for rats um cats for killing rats will they work probably not um so i think that's a that's a no-no mark it's a no-no from me <laughs> if if only the chicago alder people and council had consulted us before they shot off with this half-baked idea that's right they should have Paid us lots of money for to say that's a no-no. Um, please do not do it. Um, and now can you please pay our invoice? So let's jump on. Okay, we're already half an hour in, Mark. We're, we're talking a lot of, I was going to say talking a lot of um, waffle there, but we're talking a lot of good information there. Let's talk about the product review. We have a product review that both of us have recently acquired, Mark. And what is that? I'm so excited about this, Brendan. You would not believe the number of times I am flat out at work. I'm struggling to write my records. I'm confused by some complex medical case. And one of the receptionists will wander through with a lovely little jar with a bit of glad wrap over the top and a spider in the bottom of it. Um, and, um, and, and I've become, well... You know, I'm no entomologist, but above average at identifying most of our local spiders in uh, West Wall's End in Newcastle. But I'm so excited that, and I've got to declare a bit of an interest here, we both uh, have connections to, um, well, I know you have a connection with um, uh, Alan, um, who is uh, uh, many, one, the, one of the owners of Mini Beast Wildlife, the organisation who has identified, who's created the Spidentify app for our um, smartphones. Yes. And it's just the best thing. Um, it's a, uh, I know a lot of effort's gone into um, making the, uh, the app user-friendly and um, I've had it for a week now and really just the, um, this evening I've started playing around with it and I found it relatively intuitive and easy to use. Um, the, the, there is, of course, a, a, uh, just a, a list of spiders that you can search through, but um, the uh, questionnaire, if there's nine questions, uh, nicely set out in graphical form, which will um, lead you through that series of questions, um, leads you through to a, um, an identity for the spider that you might have. And, uh, and I have run through it a couple of times already, and it seems to work really, really well when I um, uh, do the Huntsman, do the Daddy Longleg. So, um, so I think it's an excellent thing for us to uh, recommend to our clients. Who it's amazing how um, people are really interested to know, even when it's not one of the dangerous spiders. People are really interested to know about the spiders that are in their garden and in their yard and how they fit into the local ecology. And um, and I'm really excited that um, that there's this new tool that we can just keep on our phones, um, and it will expand our knowledge and understanding of our arachnid friends. Absolutely. So to to clarify for our listeners, it is a spider identification app that's available for Apple and also Android um, phones. And it is called Spidentify. It will only it only deals with Australian spider identification, so it doesn't cover all spiders worldwide, which you can imagine is would be a lot of spiders. But it is beautifully presented and, and beautifully made. And yes, Alan now 
um, um, our friend and um, um, f- I'd classify him as a, a specialist nature photographer. Um, the, the, the photos, the macro photos of these spiders are, are enough just to buy the app for that. Um, it is not a free app. I think it's about $4 Australian, um, the app, but it's, it's wonderful. It's just a beautifully made app and all the information they have in there are great. It has a, it, it, once you identify the spider, it talks about whether or not they're venomous, um, whether they're aggressive spiders. Um, talks a little bit about the anatomy of them and where they're where they're located, where you'd find them in the house. Um, it's fantastic, and the accompanying website. If you just do an internet search for Spidentify, um, you will find the website, and that will link to the app as well. And it's fantastic. And if you enjoy the photographs that are in Spidentify, have a look at. Alan's um, company called minibeastwildlife.com.au and he does some amazing work. He does a lot of filming and wildlife ph- photography. He also does animal wrangling for, for movies uh, and, and um, TV and he's been fortunate enough to work with um, David Attenborough, um, I, I think at least once, maybe a couple of times with the filming of his um, recent recent um, series for the BBC. So, um, yeah, amazing app and um, highly recommended. And my score mark, you haven't asked me what my score is, my score for Spidentify is... A stellar nine point seven out of ten. What's your score? I, 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 I'm exactly the same. I can't um, rate it highly enough. I think it's an awesome bit of kit for our smartphones. So yes, get out there, get Spidentify, and get identifying those spiders and um, support. It's a, it's you know they do great work, and he's um, does some um, really. Um, amazing conservation work as well, uh, Alan. So I think it's good to buy the app because I'm sure some of the money will eventually go into his uh, his um, various uh, studies that he's doing um, regarding wildlife and not just the spiders. So let's jump into our main topic, Mark, and this is a bit of a serious one we've got this week. So although we probably will try and throw in a few jokes somewhere along the line and the hint is what the main topic or the um, the title of the podcast this week is sorry so we are going to talk a little bit about dealing with complaints so dealing with complaints from owners um, and talking about the various types of complaints that we potentially are presented with whether you're a veterinary nurse or technician or a veterinarian and uh, regardless of whether the complaint is your fault or not how we deal with those particular complaints and then what we do or how we do deal with them if they are our fault and how we do deal with them if we are not our fault, if they're not our fault. So, Mark, do you want to kick it off and talk a little bit about um, what types of complaints we see or what types of complaints um, um, you think most commonly are presented or, or, or people complain I do, about? Yeah. I, I, and I think I come at this uh, problem from two aspects, uh, the fir- from two perspectives. The first one is um, as a, you know, as a general practitioner and practice owner, um, and so I do get to see, um, uh, you know, 
the complaints that come in to us at the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital, and um, we, we have a system for dealing with those, um, whether they be through online review systems or whether people write to us and um, and uh, lodge a complaint directly. Um, and I also get the perspective of um, of uh, of the complaints that come to the board, and um, and they are. Um, that also, uh, you know, informs um, the the way that I deal with the complaints at my practice because I get to see some of the ways that these things can get out of control and maybe escalate to the point where clients feel they have no choice but to raise the matter with uh, with a, a greater authority. So I think the first thing to say is that. Um, is that things do happen. Don't, as a, um, a practitioner, as a, a, a veterinary support person, a technician or a nurse, um, receptionist, um, we, li- we work in a relatively um, complicated workplace that has, you know, it's not... Uh, I often think about practice management, people who talk about um, keyhole, you know, um, the way that you design procedures and protocols to make it so that anyone can just step in and do the job um, once you've uh, automated it sufficiently. But I think one of the things about veterinary practice is that that's one of the hardest things to do because there is a real human element to it and it's very difficult to um, to just organise a, a simple protocol. You can't, unlike a um, fast food place where you know that the chips have to be in the, the uh, frying oil for 30 seconds and it doesn't matter who's, um, who's doing that job, the jobs that are done in a veterinary practice are really... Uh, heavily dependent on the people that are doing them and the animals that they're being done to. And so things are not always going to work. And bad things happen. Um, Even with the best technique and the best attention to detail, there are sometimes going to be animals that don't, you know, don't go the way that you want them to. Um, And these uh, circumstances, whether there's been a genuine error um, uh, whether a mistake has been made or whether it's just one of these bad days where things are not going to go well, they're the circumstances where I think um, uh, the, the being prepared, having a system in place to, uh, to deal with things and um, being prepared to uh, communicate and act reasonably contemporaneously can really um, take a lot of the stress out of these complaints, Brendan. Yes, and we're... We're a service industry, and I think the approach to initially dealing with them is exactly the same as whether it is that that fish and chip shop where they they burnt your chips and you want to take them back and you complain. It's it's the same sort of approach to any sort of complaint process, and and the outline that I tend to tend to go with that is is three or four things I think of in 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 the back of my mind when when I'm having that person in front of me if they're presenting their complaint to me whether or not it is our mistake or not I think these things you you should be doing regardless and the first one is listen and that's just listening to the and not interrupting to the to the person letting them vent let them tell you what their complaint is and listen to it and and just have eye contact with them and let them vent and and and, and get it off their chest um, and, and it's amazing just how many appreciate the fact that 
you just actually listened to them and weren't trying to be combative, weren't trying to argue with them, and you were just listening quietly and understanding what was happening. And I think the second part of that is to acknowledge that they do have a complaint. So you let them vent and you say to them, and it may even be rewording it slightly and just um, vocalising it back to them and saying, is this your complaint? Let me get it clear. Is this what you're um, not happy with? And reiterating um, a summary of what they just said to you and and getting the acknowledgement from them that, yes, that's what it is. And if it isn't, um, clarifying it. So you're both in the same book as far as what the potential complaint is with them. Um, and the third thing I, I, I then like to do, and again, it's a pretty standard as far as what, what – um, people are taught generally I think with how to deal with complaints is to confirm to the person that you would deal with it so take ownership of it whoever whoever deals with the person and say look yes I understand you have a complaint um, we will get it fixed um, and leave it with me I will get back to you because I think Mark the, one of the worst things you can do with with any complaint um, regardless of who's right or wrong um, and I think most of the time nobody's right or wrong it's just poor communication that's been um that's happened somewhere along the line um, is not dealing with it. And if you just let it fester, it will do exactly that. So if you don't get back to that person within the next few days um, at least and tell them that you're interviewing the staff member or members that were involved, for instance, then they will just get more and more angry and that will fester and then you end up with the whole thing blowing up in your face. So I think somebody in the team needs to say, okay, I'm going to deal with Mr. Smith um, who has complained to us and that person then deals directly with Mr. Smith and you have one point of contact with dealing with that um, particular complaint. And then you work together to how we can fix this. And and potentially that's one thing I, I sometimes say to people when we have complaints and unfortunately we don't have too many complaints um, and it's literally saying to the client um, to their face, um, how do we fix this or what can we do to fix this? And often all it would m may be is, is for you to explain why you didn't explain the procedure that you just undertook with their animal or uh, that somebody just needs to say, look, sorry, uh, your animal did go home with without a bandana and we normally send home every animal with a bandana and why didn't I get a bandana on my animal? Um, so it's just um, – so some of them can be quite easy and it may not be something complex that they, they require from you apart from an acknowledgement that there was a mistake somewhere along the line. And then taking that the next step is then uh, going back to your staff and, and, and retraining them if we need to, or at least having a bit of a discussion about that complaint in the next staff meeting. So so that's the sort of process that, that I think of, Mark, when we deal with the um, complaints initially. To, have you got anything to add to that, Mark? There's two, um, there's a, well, a couple of comments that I'd, um, I'd uh, echo there, Brendan, and I, they're, they're informed by the complaints we see at the board um, and I cannot begin to tell you how many of the complaints um, include in the very first few lines the the fact that um, that no one talked to me about this that I had a complaint um, I sent it in and no one said anything and so I would just reiterate that I know I'm the least 
Like I am so confrontation averse. I would walk a mile before I'd have an argument with someone. But I know that if you uh, do not um, make contact, listen to people, um, genuinely do the active, reflective listening um, so that people know you're engaged, acknowledge and validate their concerns um, and uh, confirm, as you said, that um, that the practice will deal with it, um, and then make take steps. And the thing I find most commonly that uh, uh, most clients that uh, do come to us with complaints, I, I, they're always distressing that that the people that we're trying to do things for might not find everything that we do to be perfect because I know the effort I and the staff put in, but it's also an opportunity to identify the weak points and the clients that come to you with these complaints, they feel that they're providing a, um, you know, a, a constructive criticism there. They're generally not um, in the first instance uh they're upset because something hasn't happened the way that they expected it to, but they want you to know that um, that that something's not right. And so um, putting things in place to correct that, to listen to them and correct it, will often um, not only stop that complaint escalating, but will turn those clients into... Um, into much more highly bonded and trusting uh, people. So I think um, we regularly find that uh, that using a process of, uh, as you said, Brendan, interviewing the staff members involved, getting their input into exactly what went wrong with the communication or the procedure, making sure that uh, we identify the critical points in in the practice or the the time, the, the procedure, whatever it was that uh, failed, and documenting it. It doesn't have to be like a 40-page um, entry in the procedures manual, but just a single page that says when A happens in the future, we're going to do B, C, and D, and that's going to prevent E from happening. Um, and then, of course, as you said, making sure that that bit of information gets to all the staff so that the problem doesn't occur again. Um, but I find um, showing that piece of paper with those changed um, practice procedures um, uh, that that makes a big impact to people and uh, and makes them feel that what otherwise would be a very negative experience actually further enhances their initial impression that we're um, truly caring and devoted um, uh, people in our workplace. Yes. And I think we should then talk about the new age internet uh, uh, complaints that when we first graduated, there was certainly no existence of these. And that's the complaints that you may get via your website or via a Google review or via a Facebook uh, review. So... Uh, for I think most practices now have either a Facebook site or a Google business type site and clients may then give you a review of um, between one and five and they may use that as a method to to complain to you and that I, I find them the most frustrating of all um, again we occasionally see some complaints that way not not many at all thank goodness uh, because they're often the most difficult to deal with mark because I think it's it's like um, 
um, spamming and fl- flaming and uh, people online. It, it's it's done from a distance, so it's such an easy thing to do because they're not in front of you. That you often get some quite bizarre comments or reviews that um, are a bad review, which is really just a complaint. And 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 all you can really do is try and post a reply to that on behalf of the business. But I find them quite frustrating to deal with. Do you want to comment on those sort of social media posts um, slash complaints, Mark, and, and how you go about potentially replying or dealing with those? I think, um, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, th- I find... The complaints that come to us, uh, um, you know, directly or via correspondence, and um, and the people are happy to engage. They're they're difficult and and uh, they're upsetting at times. But they, I tell you what, the emotional investment that social media generates and the frustration that you often cannot uh, deal directly with the person's problem. Um, we had one of our um, at one stage, one of the series of negative posts um, that we had, we'd gone through and identified that four out of the five people who had posted had not even been to our hospital, that either they were um, giving us a negative review, a very bad negative review as a result of a post on a Facebook site that they had feelings about or um, uh they had um, phoned and the phone call hadn't gone the way that they had hoped it would go. Um, so I think the first thing I'd say to everyone that has to deal with these um, uh, online reviews, the social media comments, is don't take them to heart. They really are frustrating and I don't doubt that in particular circumstances um, they can amount to, uh, to um, you know, business-changing um, uh, uh, endeavours, and so I understand why people worry about them. But I think in the vast majority of instances that we, as a profession, we give them far more weight than they actually deserve. Um, and I think having a process in place for dealing with them, making sure that uh, that you respond well to online reviews, um, I think that can take a lot of the heat out of it for you. Um, and so I, we have the a system in place for relatively um, quickly. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, minute to minute, but within a few days to make sure that we respond to any negative reviews. We do a little bit of investigation to see if we can identify the circumstances in which um, that person um, uh, may have gotten a negative experience and um, try and understand it a little bit. Um, we make sure that our um, our response um, is as positive and uh, constructive as possible. We thank them for taking the time to make the review. We uh, convey our distress that they might have negative feelings despite the um considerable efforts that all the staff make to try and prevent that from happening. Um, We uh, deal with the specific problems. So if we do have someone who's phoned and and couldn't get, uh, um, you know, an appointment because they couldn't afford the consult, um, then we talk to them about why the consult fee is that amount and uh, why... Uh, the the uh, costs are involved and when we have to schedule and triage the consults um, and we make sure that um, that 
that all the language in the response is uh, positive and, and invites the people to come back to the business and get a better experience. It's been our experience in all those social media posts that no one, uh, the, the people who make those negative posts, as you said, Brendan, they're keyboard warriors generally um, and they're very, very rarely um, uh, of a type of person who's happy to come in and talk to you about their complaints. They're mainly um, reactive things. As you said, they're, they're the sorts of um, people who uh, get fired up about something and um, and immediately go online and, and uh, fire off a, a Google review or a WOMO review or whatever, and, um, and then that's their way of forgetting about it. So generally, once we've responded, um, we don't have any further interaction with those people. And, uh, and I very comfortably these days, once we've had a chance of, um, of responding to them and uh, making sure that the reply is as positive and uplifting and, uh, um, and, um, and not engaging in a conflict, I'm happy to put these experiences out of my mind and that's what I'd suggest most people do. Yes, and I think most of those people who are posting those negative reviews uh, are really just venting their frustration of not being able to be seen or, or it's it's a variation of complaint. And some of the – and you could almost see them typing in, in, in a rage um, with, with what they write down with, with the reviews that I've seen on some of the some of the clinics and some of the pages. And one, one way I try and look at it – is the same as looking at a review for any sort of product. So if I'm going to buy a television or a computer, looking online, I might be looking on Amazon or another sort of um, site where there's been lots and lots of reviews, and I look at the overall average score out of five for that particular television, for instance, and if it's 4.7 out of five with 2,000 reviews, and you know, it's probably a very good television. Um, and I discount the very bad reviews, the ones that are zero or one star, because you're probably that they probably got that dud television, or they've had a very bad experience with customer service or the salesperson. And the glowing reviews, that the ones that are giving that ten plus out of ten, the eleven out of ten, um, I'm a little bit sceptical about those sort of reviews because they may be from a bit of an inside job or somebody who's been given the television um, for free for a review. So I tend to discount the two extremes, but I look very closely at the average, especially if there's been a very a reasonable number of reviews for that for that um, product or that vet clinic, um, then we know it's probably a good place to go to, and it's the same as if, if I'm buying a cup of my coffee. Mark, if I look at a look at a cafe that has a very good average review, then I'll know be able to get that good magic coffee. Mark, um, that um, that uh, I desire every day so yeah so but it is frustrating and i find it difficult to sort of turn off when we do have a negative uh review on social media and i do all the types of things that you've mentioned and you've coached me in because you you have a much bigger clinic and have had unfortunately a couple Any more complaints than you <laughs> yeah but, but percentage wise probably the same number and um yeah I, I i try and do a positive response to that and um yeah exactly the same um response as what you've had in that none of those people have have come into the clinic and um come up to us face-to-face to discuss the um, complaint and 
Uh, they've also been sometimes complaints that, well, yeah, but they've people we've never seen before. Um, they've not even come into the clinic. You're going I think to say you, something? Uh, yeah, I think you made a very, very good point. And, um, and it's a way that I think veterinary practice practices can um, uh, insulate themselves from the, the, uh, the negative consequences of a couple of bad reviews, and that is to um, reasonably actively and not in any um, insincere way, but um, to solicit reviews either on your Facebook site or Google site. They're probably the two main ones. Um, and I think that you hit the nail on the head that if you've only got like four reviews and one of them is bad, um, then it sort of takes a disproportionate weight. But if the practice has um, 100 or 200 reviews and four or five of them are bad and 180 of them are great, um, people tend not to pay attention to the individual reviews so much and just look at the at the, uh, at the weighted average. At, um, and so you lessen the impact of, uh, of those um, reviews made uh, as a venting exercise uh, by um, having a significant number of genuine reviews of other types. So I think um, it's not a bad thing for veterinary practices to uh, solicit um, uh, review online reviews and trying to manage them a little bit. So um, I reckon that's a good thing for all of us to do. Yes. Tell me that. Tell me about i'm interested in your opinion um we have a couple of clients who you know they've they've had a whinge at times they've um they've made life difficult at the front counter they've been demonstrative in front of other clients they've um taken a lot of time for us to explain things and and then made a big deal about how you know maybe it wasn't explained properly or they can't remember it being explained. Um, are there clients that you sack, Brendan? Do you have any clients that you go no more to? Yes, it is rare, but yes, um, I think that the aim there is if you have Mr Smith who comes in every week with his dog for anal gland expression and you express those anal glands and he complains every week about the cost of it even though you're giving it to him at a vastly discounted price because you're doing it every week for his little doggy and chances are he'll probably go back home and go down to the pub or to his bingo sessions at the local um, retired servicemen's league and complain to everybody about the really expensive vet. And when I get in on Monday morning and I see that Mr Smith is coming in on Friday, yeah, it makes for an uncomfortable week because I know he'll be in the consult on Friday complaining about vets make lots of money and they're driving brand new cars all the time and you're charging me too much. Um, and they're the sorts of clients, if, 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 we, if we do get an extreme like that, that I will say to them, and I think it's really a, potentially it's almost like a personality clash with, with the person and, and the clinic as a whole. Um, and I would say to them, look, we're obviously not – you're not happy – with our clinic, um, even though you keep coming back here, and perhaps it would be best if you were serviced better by another clinic, and then we'd both be happy. And it's amazing the very few people that I've said that to, they will literally turn around and say, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and I, I know I'm a bit of a complainer and a whinger, and um, I'll try not to do it in the future. And and 
the opposite may have happen. They may end up one of your best clients, and then go back down to the the the, the casino and and tell everybody that um, that um, you're a fantastic uh, vet clinic uh, while they're playing the pokies and, and chatting to everybody. So it can flip itself around there, Mark, and you end up with a very good client. And if they go away, then good because it solved um, the problem as well. So, yeah, um, I think we're very reluctant to admit that maybe that person doesn't suit our style of, of veterinary practice or our, our clinic ambience or our clinic um, feel and that, that maybe they should go to another clinic where they can they can find a clinic that um, will will enjoy their presence and enjoy their complaints um, and I prefer that not to be my clinic because I have enough stresses in my life as a veterinarian as it is let alone having Mr Smith coming in every week and telling me that I'm a very expensive vet and um, I'm not very good and I charge too much and that um, you sound home. like you're developing a, bit of a, developing a bit of a complex there. <laughs> I'm angry. I'm angry, Mark. I'm angry. I've turned angry at the end of the podcast again. So, yes, um, and I'm glad that we don't have Mr. Smith with us anymore with his dog, <laughs> Squeeze Jose and Ongland. So that's my answer to that, Mark. Um, so, yes, we do. It's rare, but I have sacked clients, and I think it is a, it is a skill we should all have um, and that we should say to somebody, look, you should go away. Um, the the more extreme ones are that, uh, and it's and it's probably only been it's been way less than than five over the years where I've heard some screaming and carrying on in in the reception, and I've had a very rude client who's been extremely rude to one of my staff members of staff and i have just literally got up to them and say go away we don't want to see you again um don't come back here ever again um and that's probably only two to five people that i've ever said that to but um you know i don't want people um being abused and regardless of what what they were saying to them they were just being very rude and and i don't think there's any excuse for not being civil to people and being um, being nice to people when you're dealing with them, regardless of what what situation you're in. So yeah, uh, and I would just echo that um, uh, I like the idea. I realise that there are times when I get to deal with um, troublesome clients, but um, it's only a shadow of the the uh, the the efforts that have to be made by our reception and support staff um, they often are at the cold face of dealing with these problems and and they're probably you know there's a number of factors uh, that make it even more telling and I agree with you if uh, I feel very protective towards the people who are so devoted and um, work so well to make my um, job that much easier um, and if they are in that uh, situation where um, they at all feel um, even just verbally threatened then that's unacceptable and um, and those people uh, whatever the reason for their short temper and their lack of courtesy um, I'm the same as you they can find somewhere else if they're gonna um, put my staff in that position and I think I must admit that there there are times when I should have then called that client into the um, consult room and said to them myself um, hey you're talking um, the wrong way to to my member and start member of staff and stop doing it so and and I must admit that I there have been times when I haven't done that that I should have done that um, because for some reason they 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 sometimes 
listen to me um, more so than listening to the front um, counter reception staff or the nursing staff who are they they aren't respecting as well as they should and if if my staff is then saying to me hey mr smith has been rude to me i should be calling them out more often and, and saying to mr smith hey come in the consult room here and stop doing that you're doing the wrong thing um so i i must admit there has been a few occasions when i i should have been saying that to clients and i haven't so don't do it we only want good clients mark we only want good clients don't we so I think we're just about over the one hour mark and the outro man's back in. I'm not playing the intro, I'm playing the outro twice this episode and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.